two weeks ago, we were in Acts uh, chapter 3. Uh, last week, Dave Gundrum was here uh, visiting and telling us about uh, church planting and opportunities in church planting. Uh, but two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 3, and I would just remind you uh, that it's the incident where Peter heals uh, the lame man as they are going into the temple by the beautiful uh, gate. And then Peter preaches uh, the gospel. Now we're in Acts chapter 4, uh, because chapter 4 comes after chapter 3, but I just would remind you that these uh, incidences connect and they continue to minister the word and the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, are opposed to it, uh, but also they had seen the man who was healed and that had created a bit of a stir. Let's listen then to the word of God. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. And it was already for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem uh, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deeds done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel by that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived uh, that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's begin with a word of quick prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would just uh, speak to us from your word. It is your word. It is uh, God-breathed and profitable for correction, for teaching, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, as we open this passage this morning, we believe that you have something for us. You have spoken this word and you speak to us today uh, through your word, that it is living and active. We pray that you would uh, uh, touch my lips this morning as I preach, and uh, Lord, that these words, that your words would be profitable to your people. Uh, In your name we pray, amen. This morning, the theme of our message is is boldness. I want you to think for a moment, what what comes to your mind when you think of boldness? When you think of, of someone who is bold, or perhaps maybe think of someone who is brave. Uh, Every now and then in the news, you see people that that jump into danger to save someone's life. And that might not be verbal boldness, but it is certainly boldness and and braveness uh, to do those. You think of the person who who sees someone who falls onto the tracks at a a subway station or a train station and they jump onto the tracks. And and not too long ago, there was someone that held someone down as the train uh, went over top. Uh, that takes boldness. That takes uh, bravery. Uh, I would be okay with maybe helping someone get off the tracks, but I would be scared uh, of having the train come over me. I don't like tight spaces, and I certainly uh, wouldn't want to risk uh, getting a little bit of a haircut from that train uh, buzzing over my head. But it's boldness. You think of someone who who stands up to a crowd of people, maybe uh, intervenes for someone who is being bullied and and tells them uh, to knock it off or to stop. That takes boldness. That takes bravery. Uh, Again, not too long ago in the news, there was a young man, I think it was out in California. uh, There was a person who was, uh, I believe they were partly deaf or blind or something, and they were being picked on and and beaten up. And a young man stepped in and, and actually intervened and actually defended uh, the, the kid against the bullies. That takes boldness. That takes bravery. One of my favorite examples in history of, of boldness in speaking to an enemy comes from World War II. Uh, in World War II, uh, there was the 101st Airborne Division. That's uh, the, the group that was the, the movie series, The Band of Brothers. Steven Spielberg made uh, a series out of it. Uh, but in in the history, they, the, the 100th Air Force Division, during the Battle of the Bulge, during the middle of winter, they got out in front and they, they were in uh, the city of Bastogne in France and they were surrounded by the German army. The German army made a major offensive. These guys got stuck in the town and, and the German army just completely enveloped them. Uh, and there was this small group of guys uh, holding out in, in the city, 101st Airborne Division. Middle of winter, supplies are running out. And so the Germans send an envoy into the town, and they come before uh, the general, General Anthony McAuliffe, who, who was there at the time, and they demand uh, their surrender. Y- your situation is hopeless. You're completely surrounded. 
it's time you surrender. Now, the 101st Airborne Division, they were pretty, uh, pretty elite group, uh, kind of like Army Rangers or something like that. They were the parachute guys. Uh, General McCullough's answer to the Germans was basically one word, nuts. You are nuts. Uh, interestingly, the translator had to explain to the German what the word nuts meant, had to explain what the idiom was saying. And then the German guy got pretty uh, upset with this. But, but it takes a matter of boldness. You are completely surrounded to say to the guy who wants you to surrender, who's willing to spare your life, you're nuts. We are going to fight no matter what uh, it takes. And eventually the guys were rescued uh, by the Americans. Uh, the story goes that the 101st never actually admitted that they needed rescue. They were that uh, tough of a group of guys. They didn't want to even admit that. They, they assumed they would fight their way out one way or another. But that takes boldness. That takes uh, bravery, maybe even a, a, a bit of craziness to your character to be able to stand and say that. But, you know, as, as Christians, uh, we need to have a boldness for the Lord Jesus. We need to have a boldness when it comes to our willingness uh, to share the gospel. And part of what we've been looking at throughout the book of Acts is that that all of us as Christians have a responsibility and a privilege to take the word of God and to share it with those around us, to tell people about Jesus. And for most of us, myself included, that doesn't come natural. I don't mind publicly speaking like this, but it is not natural for me to walk up to someone and just right out begin a conversation. But the scriptures teach us to be taking the gospel, to be looking for opportunities to evangelize, and then to be sharing the word of God. And to do that, we need boldness. So our main point this morning is simply this. Be bold in Jesus. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is in you. He has given you his Holy Spirit. And so we can be bold. The Lord Jesus equips us for that. And so we want to encourage you this morning and challenge ourselves to be bold for Jesus when it comes to sharing the gospel. And we have uh, four specific reasons for boldness, four motivations for boldness, and even four things you can look at if you lack boldness and you need to have a little bit of stirred up in you this morning. First this morning, be bold in Jesus because of his work is the plan and purpose of God. We are talking about Jesus. We are talking about his death and resurrection. This is the plan of God. And it is God's plan that he is fulfilling to take this message to the end of the world. And we can be bold in that. We know uh, we have the superior numbers, in a sense, spiritually speaking. We have the Lord Jesus on our side. We have the assurance that, that this is what God wants to happen. And God says in scriptures that he will accomplish his purposes. So when we understand who Jesus is, what he has done, how this is part of the plan of God, we can be bold because the boldness comes not from us. We are just cogs in the machine, so to speak. We are just the tiny little uh, corporals and privates and sergeants in the, the vast army of God. But it is God 
who is the general fulfilling his purpose. And our boldness comes because of whose army we're serving in. The word of God will spread unhindered by the opposition of men. Look at verses 1 through 4, if you will. As they were speaking of the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now first, I want you to notice, I think there are, there are two reasons, specific reasons that we can point to that, that the leaders are annoyed at this point. They are annoyed first because Peter and the disciples and the apostles are preaching in the temple. It's, it's as if they are, they are moving in on the sphere uh, that, the, that these leaders oversee. I'll tell you, if, if a pastor came in here this morning and decided that he wanted to preach, I would be a little bit annoyed. The Lord has charged me to be here this morning uh, to preach the Word of God. But even more, these disciples are coming in and teaching something different than what the Pharisees would have believed or what the leaders would have believed. So, so this happening in the temple under their watch, it, it makes them upset. Who do these guys think they are? The second reason is that the apostles are proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, specifically the resurrection of Jesus. They're teaching the people in the very space that the Sadducees and the leaders in the temple would be preaching, the, teaching the people. But they're also, it says, proclaiming the resurrection, Jesus, uh, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, a little bit of history, a little bit of, uh, maybe some of you know this, but we need to pay attention to it. It says in verse 1 that the Sadducees were part of this group that came upon them. The Sadducees were a group of the Sanhedrin. Typically, they were divided into Pharisees and Sadducees. And I won't go into all the differences this morning. But the Sadducees were ones in particular who denied the resurrection from the dead. They, they all denied that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? But, but the Pharisees at least believed that one day there would be a resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees said, nope, no way, not going to happen. There is no such thing as the resurrection of, of the dead. A part of that is they didn't think some of the later Old Testament passages which talk about the resurrection, they didn't think those were actually in Scripture. But here are the, the, Pharisee, or the, the disciples, and they are saying, in Jesus, there is this thing called the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus rose from the dead. And they were probably saying, too, you know, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, one day you will rise again from the dead. And the Pharisees, it's just, you know, it's getting under their skin. They're upset about this. Uh, one of my, one of the, one of my, I, I don't know if it's my favorite story, but one of the cool stories about the Apostle Paul in Acts 23, when he's, when he's dragged into the temple before the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders, and this big fight starts, and they're, they're persecuting him, and, and Paul gets up and he says, he says, brothers, uh, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and the reason I am here today, the reason I, uh, you're treating me like this or that I'm on trial, he says, is I believe in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 
And, and that just like splits the crowd. Pharisees are, or Sadducees are going, oh, her resurrection, we can't have that. The Pharisees are going, wait a minute, he just, he believes in the resurrection. And, and the Sadducees don't. Well, maybe he's on our side. And he just, he, he, Paul turns the attention from himself. Of course, they all did not like Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. And Paul's just saying, oh, the issue is just the resurrection. And then this just completely divides the crowd. Well, one of the reasons here in this passage that people are getting upset, the Sadducees in particular, is they're talking about the resurrection. We, too, live in a culture where people don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, people think it's phony. People think uh, that it's just something ancient that, that people long ago would have easily believed. But now that we understand science, we know that people don't rise from the dead. Well, the whole point in this context as well is people didn't believe naturally in the resurrection of the dead. Even the Pharisees understood that resurrections don't just happen randomly, that only God can do this. They, of course, rejected that God had done it to Jesus. But notice in the midst of this where there is this persecution coming upon the the apostles here. Notice verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That means there were at least 5,000 people that got saved uh, that day. Uh, That's not even counting the women and children. I can imagine the crowd was probably so large of people that got saved. You can't count everyone. And so it's at least uh, 5,000 that get saved in the very time when the leaders are persecuting Scripture later on says in Acts, as the word of God is being proclaimed, that as many who had heard the word of God, those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. That God, when we preach the word, when we share the gospel, God fulfills his plans and purposes. And and the great privilege that we have is that he can use us. You see, boldness doesn't come from ourselves. Boldness comes from God and the authority of God's word. And what I want you to notice is many, many times in Scripture, the very moments when we have opposition are the very moments when God is working. Sometimes we think in in ministry or, or in evangelism, if we are being successful, no one will oppose us. If we are being successful, there will be no problems, no struggles. It will just be all starry and rosy and everything will go smoothly. That is not the way that it happens in Scripture. In fact, oftentimes it is when the ministries are the most successful, biblically speaking, that there is the greatest opposition. Let me give you two examples from the pages of Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And it's tempting to finish and and just want to end the verse right there. Wow, Paul had a successful ministry. The door was open. And what would most of us think an open door looks like? He says this, For a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And there are many adversaries. I don't know about you, but I would tend to probably be in my weaker moments say, if there are many adversaries, the door must be closed here and I should go somewhere else. That's not what Paul says. 
There's a wide open door. How do I know? I have lots of adversaries. Peter, John, the, the disciples preaching here. The, the leaders are coming down hard on him. And what does Luke say? But the word of God is spreading. God is doing his work in the midst of adversaries and despite adversaries. Sometimes we think a successful church will never have any problems. Nobody will ever disagree with one another. There will never be anybody that comes into the church that that creates any trouble. There will never be a Christian that's stumbling in the midst of a successful church. There will never be hardships in my life if I am living the successful Christian life. It's not what Scripture teaches. Let me give you another example from Scripture. Remember Elijah? Remember Elijah when he's on Mount Carmel and he stands against all those great adversaries of of Baal and he calls down this fire from heaven and then he runs away. He runs down the mountain. He has to get away uh, from King Ahab. And he goes off and the Lord leads him into the desert and puts him into a mountain. And Elijah says this, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. In other words, I fought the good fight. I've I've defended the cause. I am zealous. I am bold. He says, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed the prophets with the sword. And he says this, I even I am left and they may seek my life to take it away. All this hardship. Woe is me. I'm the only one left. And what does the Lord say a few verses later? It's 1 Kings 19, verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There was successful ministry of the word of God in Israel at that time. Elijah didn't see it because he was kind of in this moment of weakness, in this moment of self-doubt and pity. He was just kind of absorbed on himself. But even in the midst of all of this hardship, God was carrying out his purposes. And I tell you, in the midst of our hardships, God does and will carry out his purposes. And sometimes when it relates to evangelism, you know, you might share the gospel with someone and they don't believe. Or you might share the gospel with someone and they really get in your face. Maybe they even get hostile to you. God can work in and through those circumstances. Maybe that person won't get saved. Maybe it's not God's plan at this time for that particular person to get saved. But you don't know the seeds that you're planting and how God will use them. You don't know maybe the other people that are overhearing the conversation. If nothing else, you are being faithful as the messenger. And that is a success in the eyes of God. As we keep moving through this passage, the rulers and the Pharisees or the Sadducees, they want to know how Peter and John performed these miracles. Look at verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem and Ananias, the the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. uh, And they uh, and when they had set them in their midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? Uh, Just a little 
uh, point of interest that you might. We've actually discovered, archaeologists have discovered an ossuary. It's a, a little burial box where they would put the bones. And it has Caiaphas's name on and his family. We've actually confirmed, uh, of course we knew this from scripture, but we've actually confirmed with other evidence that he was a real person. And, and a lot of people already believe this anyways, but just a really neat historical uh, find uh, not too long ago. But these guys, they want to know, how are you doing this? Uh, they kind of divide the question by what power or by what name? Peter has an open door and he takes it. So he testifies uh, to Jesus Christ. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers and people of the elders, if you are if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, which is why they're here being examined by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I think the scriptures are being fulfilled here. Because in Luke, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should, how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You see, Christian boldness, Christian confidence comes in the Lord, not from ourselves. Sometimes when pastors or or when I was in Bible college, when people wanted to stir up boldness in us, uh, they would either try to give us a kick in the pants or they would they would lay a, a really heavy guilt trip on you. And sometimes probably as young uh, 19 and 20 year olds who think we know everything, we probably needed uh, that good kick in the pants. But the boldness comes not from ourselves and not from me standing here and saying, oh, you guys really ought to do this. You all got to be more evangelistic and I'll just stand here on a Sunday and tell you what to do. But rather the boldness comes from the Lord. The Lord cultivates this. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom in what to say and and uses in our hearts and lives the scriptures that we study. There's interesting here, too. I think there's a little play on words. When Peter says this, and, and he probably spoke in Hebrew or Aramaic, but when Luke records this in the Greek, he has Peter say, by him, this man is standing before you well. And Peter means very clearly, he means this man is healed, he's all better, he's well in the sense of all this uh, crippling ailments are completely gone. But Luke uses the word where we would get the word, we could also translate it saved. In fact, it's a similar word, it's the same root word when he says two verses later, there is salvation in no one else. I think it's a little bit of play on the words here. This man is standing before you well. He's healed. But this man is standing before you saved. This man who was crippled believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord, through Peter and John, healed him. But Peter is going to get to the main point, which is not about the healing. It's about salvation being only in Jesus But Peter points out directly the hardness of the hearts of the leaders of Israel. Look at verse 11. The people are always going to reject what God is doing in Jesus. This Jesus is the stone 
that was rejected by you, the builders, uh, that which has become the chief cornerstone. When you build a building, and this is a quote, by the way, an allusion to Psalm 118, verse 22. When you build a building, right, in the ancient world, you're using block, big, huge block. In fact, when Solomon built his temple, he, he car- they carved these huge stones out, and they actually carved them and fitted them so that when they got to the side of the temple, they could just put them in. It, it was like, maybe not too much of an exaggeration, it's like carving out giant Lego blocks, right? And when you get them to the temple, they are just the right size, and you drop them uh, down in. Uh, how's that? The temple as a Lego set, right? No, not, not what we're saying. But you need a giant cornerstone. The, the cornerstone did two things. It, it bore the weight of the two walls that are coming together. If you don't have a big, giant, strong cornerstone, uh, you put that weight on and it will crumble. The other thing a cornerstone needs to be is it needs to be square, right? If you're making a building with a 90-degree corner and your cornerstone is less than 90 degrees or larger than 90 degrees, you're going to have trouble lining up the rest of your block. When I was a kid, I think I've shared this before, we spent a summer one summer and we bricked our house and when you brick your house we would always start in the corners and and i remember because my dad would do this he would he would build up maybe like five or six rows in the corner and it would kind of be you know he'd build it up at block and it would kind of be like a little triangle and then all you would do is you would take a string from the first row and take it to the other row and you could lay the blocks in between really quickly because your corners were straight and you would just do like six rows like that and go up and then you pause and you build up the corners again, which takes longer because you're measuring and you're leveling and you're getting it straight. But then you lay the string and right back and forth in between. Jesus is the cornerstone in the sense that the whole church, God's plan for his people is being built upon him. And everyone needs to line up, as it were, with Jesus. And all of the weight of the accomplishment of our salvation is resting upon Jesus. And what Peter is saying is God is building this temple, as it were, this this building, the people of God. And you guys, the leaders and teachers who are supposed to be the builders, you're rejecting the one that God has made the cornerstone. When you and I share our faith, we are always going to encounter people who reject the gospel. That's part of the reason we're sharing it, right? We're trying to break down some of those spiritual walls. That's part of the reason we use the Word of God, because only the Bible can penetrate people's hearts. But what I want to say is this, is don't get discouraged if you share the gospel with someone and, and you fail, humanly speaking. The person doesn't come to the Lord. Or you walk away and you say, man, I should have said that instead of this. Or I wish I would have thought of this instead of that. God is the one who saves people, not you. And there will always be people who are rejecting that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone Or we might use another example from the parables that the rock, remember the house built on the rock as opposed to built on the sand. There will always be people who reject Jesus Christ. And it shouldn't 
surprise us. It shouldn't mean in our minds that we've failed. Rather, maybe this is part of the plan and purpose of God, or this is the hardness of their own hearts. Don't let that discourage you. So, be bold for Jesus, despite what others might think. When people are resisting the Word of God, God is still using the Word of God to save people. When people are uh, resisting Jesus as the cornerstone, there will still be people who are getting saved because God uses His Word. Don't let that resistance discourage you. Also, think of an application is we need to be careful that we don't fall prey in our culture to the desire to be liked. I like being liked. I like when people like me. But there is always going to be a difference between me and everyone else that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and while I need to be nice to these people, while I need to be kind and loving and, and put my best foot forward, humanly speaking, I can't compromise the message to make it more appealing. I can't say to, to the leaders, or Peter can't say to the leaders, well, you don't like Jesus as the cornerstone. Well, let me water it down a little bit so that, that you might like it. And then we'll get to the really hard stuff. We need to stand on the message because the message is what changes people. Second this morning, be bold in Jesus because salvation is found only in his name. So know that salvation is found only in Jesus. Look at verse 12. And there is, no salva- there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, this is an echo, I think, of Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among the survivors, there shall be those whom the Lord calls. But the only way for people to be saved is for them to believe that Jesus is Lord, to put their faith and trust in them. This is what Peter means when he says, there is no other name by which you can be saved. This means... That at the moment that Peter is saying this, there is now a a radical divide between what the the Jewish leaders were teaching and what Peter is teaching. Up to that point and up to the point of the ministry of of Jesus, at least you could say the Pharisees believe in the living God. They're they're wrong and they're not saved. and, and, And I'm not minimizing that for a second, but they were thinking in their own minds they're worshiping God. But Peter and Jesus, obviously, Peter is following Jesus, have made it very clear that if you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. That the Pharisees and Sadducees might be saying, well, we worship the God of the Old Testament. But if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son, you don't know the God of the Bible. You don't. Because now that God has revealed the Son to us, and obviously the Old Testament saints were always supposed to look forward to the coming of the Son, but now even more that it has been made clear, we are shown that salvation is found only by trusting the Father. Or excuse me, by trusting the Son. Meaning, if you say, well, I believe in God, 
but I'm not sure that Jesus is his son. I believe that God is there, but I don't think Jesus is Lord. Salvation is not something that you have. We like today to talk about um, uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity being people of the book. And, and even to the point that people will say we all worship the same God. We believe certain little minor things that are all different, but at least as we all go back to the Old Testament, we all at least believe in the same God. But we don't, do we? We believe that there is one God and He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's because that is what Jesus and the Scriptures reveal to us. And so we say Scripture shows us this. But Jewish and, and, and people who are in Islam say that Scripture shows us this. They might have the same starting point in one sense that they say, well, we, we do believe the Old Testament is the Word of God. But they take it somewhere away from what Scripture actually says. We don't worship the same God. And that's true of Judaism. That's true of Islam. That's true of Jehovah's Witnesses. That's true of Mormons. We in our culture around us likes to think that if we all use the name God, we must be referring to the same person. But we're not. Salvation is only found in Jesus. And, and we need to stress that to people in our evangelism. People today will talk about themselves being a person of faith. That's all well and good. But if you don't believe in Jesus, if that faith is not in Him and His work, you are not saved. And, and our world, our culture takes a, a lowest common denominator approach uh, you remember your fractions maybe in math. Lowest common denominator is the lowest number that all the numbers have in common. And, and so our culture takes an approach that if we get down to the, the, get rid of all the other stuff, as long as we get to one spot that we all have in common, we all believe in God, we must all be the same. We must all, let's just all get along. It doesn't work like that. Because salvation is only found in Jesus. And we can take that out from there and say, even if you're like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or some other groups out there, and you don't believe certain things about Jesus, that he is truly God, that he died on the cross, crucified, rose again on the third day, that he's the son of God in the sense of the second person of the Trinity, you don't have trust in the real Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way of salvation. I had a number of different verses here. You know them well. Uh, Romans 10 uh, and following. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how can they call on him who they have not believed? And how can they believe on him who they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? You're only saved by believing in Jesus. And this happens as we share the word of God. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have seen these before, I'm sure. The coexist bumper stickers, right? And the C is the little crescent from the moon, and, and one of them's the Jewish star of David, and the T is the cross, and there's a couple all in there. And, and it's that idea that, well, we're all the same anyways. Now, hear me clearly as I say this, okay? We should love our neighbors as ourselves. 
So if all coexist meant is that we should be nice to unbelievers or people who believe other religions and we should treat them as human beings made in the image of God, that would be great. I'm all for coexisting in that way. If a neighbor moves in and he's not a believer, so what? We can live next to each other. I can be nice to him. I can share the gospel with him, but I don't have to be a jerk to him, right? But that's not what people mean by coexist. They mean that all these religions are the same. They mean that basically we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same spirituality. And that is not true. We need to share with people the word of God and proclaim to them that only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves, I almost said. Only Jesus saves. There's a YouTube video. It's Penn Gillette. He's that that magician from Penn & Teller. And he tells a story. It's a five-minute video. He tells a story about a guy after a show who brought him a Bible, signed it with a little personal thing, just said thank you for the show, that sort of thing. And, and Penn Jillette is an atheist. He's a really ardent atheist. He's, he's a nice guy from everything I've seen and heard, but he's, he's a really strong atheist. But it's interesting that when he is given this Bible, he got on YouTube then and just recorded a little... Uh, video it must have been on his laptop because the camera angle is all weird. But he basically commends the guy for living out his faith. He says that guy was a decent human being, a good guy. And he uses the word proselytize. I would probably prefer the ver- word evangelism. But he says this. He says, quote, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling because it makes things socially awkward, and this is the atheist speaking, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them. One of the motives for evangelism is there is no other name by which people can be saved. We live in a culture that loves to tell us we should bend on that, that we should fudge on that. There are people that that get up in churches and they even tell, tell you that people that don't know Jesus still can be saved if they believe in God by some other name. Scripture is really, really clear. There is no other name by which people can be saved. Let that encourage you this morning. I only got through two of the four reasons for boldness, so we will stop here this morning. But remember... The power of Jesus Christ is the one who saves people. And when you are evangelizing, you are announcing what he has done, who he is. You are simply telling the truth to other people. It is not you who saves the person. It is not your power or your abilities. It is God through the Holy Spirit. And some of you in your own salvation experiences know this really well. You remember how far away you were from God. You remember how dark your heart was. 
how you didn't want anything to do with God. And someone one day shared the word of God with you, or they gave you a Bible, or you read something from Scripture, and it was like the scales fell off of your eyes. You suddenly saw something there. You suddenly understood something. And maybe you didn't get it all, but you said, I need this Jesus. And even if it was someone that was, was telling you about Jesus at that very moment, there was something that was happening in your heart. And I'm sure, you know, if you had someone that led you to the Lord, you're very grateful to that person. But as you reflect on it, you know that that person didn't do anything other than tell you the truth. You know that there was nothing unique in in what that person said, but there was something that you don't get that happened in your heart. Some of us maybe heard the gospel a number of times, and then there was that one time. It just clicked. Our eyes saw something there, and we believed. That is the power of God. And the motivation for boldness in evangelism is because God uses the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. Tim Bertolet is not the power of God when he preaches. You are not the power of God when you share the faith and, and, and give people the scriptures. The gospel brings it about. And I can be bold because the weapon that I have is not the weapon of the world. It's not the cleverness of my language. The weapon is Jesus Christ and the message about him. And he opens hearts and breaks down walls. That's how people get saved. And that's why we can be faithful evangelists. Because God does the work. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, Uh, We just thank you for this day and and thank you that you uh, have given us your word and pray that you would stir up in us a a desire to be bold, a desire to to share the word of God. And uh, Lord, we just pray that that would begin to bear fruit in our lives. It would bear fruit in the life of the church. But more importantly, that that most of all, that our that our highest goal would be to bring honor and glory to you. That when we share the gospel, we are telling people about Jesus and we are glorifying your name. And you will bear fruit as you see fit. But we are telling people about how great and mighty you are. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.